0: You are listening to DermCast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Early Sunday morning, thank you guys again so much for your attention. Uh, Let's wrap up this SDPA, which appears to have been just an absolutely excellent meeting for you guys. I'm really impressed by your organization and what you've done in in what relatively is a short period of time over the past 25 years. So we're this morning going to talk about nevi and malignant melanoma, I call this a spectrum of melanocytic lesions, the intent of this is not to bore you with basics, but I think to provide a foundational level of the melanocytic lesion diathesis, if you will, along the continuum into a malignant melanoma where we will spend the bulk of our time. So, of course, we have what we consider benign melanocytic tumors, atypical melanocytic tumors, and malignant melanocytic tumors. And I use the word tumors because tumor, as you all know from the Latin root, really means growth. So nevus, dysplastic nevi, and melanoma are familiar terms. Benign melanocytic nevi arise in several different forms. They can be either acquired or congenital. They oftentimes will enlarge and increase in number until the fourth decade. Usually you'll find the majority of benign melanocytic nevi concentrated in sun-exposed areas, and the vast majority should be less than five millimeters in size in any given individual. You can see this nice, anim- uh, nice sort of caricature of nevi. Um, on the far left, actually I'll grab my, my, my mouse here. On the far left, you see the flatter formation of a junctional nevi, and as it evolves, sometimes you'll get a slightly domed shape. These lesions tend to remain fairly small in diameter, upwards of about the five millimeter mark. They're smooth in surface. Again, melanocytic lesions arising from melanocytes and not keratinocytes will not have scale associated with them. They're usually uniformly brown, and you'll see nevi uh, arising from melanocytic expansion at the dermal epidermal junction. This continuum of junctional nevi through what we call compound nevi and ultimately dermal nevi is a progression that can arise throughout the life cycle. This progression can stop at any given moment, so you may have paralysis at the junctional neva stage and on the co- On the contrary, you may have progression into something that is much more polypoid or even pedunculated. And you see these descriptions here. I think this is fairly basic and what many of us are familiar with. So just as a reminder, this would be be a description of a junctional nevus morphologically, very very flat here, maybe slightly domed here, but generally fairly small and rather flat without undulation or a polypoid surface. This represents the histology of benign junctional nevus, and you can see here the clusters of neval melanocytes, so melanocytes making a nevus, that are really abutting the dermal-epidermal junction. You don't see any melanocytes expanding into the dermis. In contradistinction, a compound nevus, which again takes on a more domed shape, tends to have both a combination of the nevomelanocytes at the DE junction, and as well this expansion of nevomelanocytes here within the midsection of the dermis. All of these cells are extremely healthy. If we went on to higher power, you wouldn't see mitoses or uh, significant dysplasia. And as you get into the more uh, polypoid or exophytic-appearing growth, these are dermal nevi. And you see, again, polypoid on the left. Sorry, this pointer is not very easy Um, and again a scalp lesion I think this is something we are very familiar with in our examinations they tend to cluster oftentimes on the scalp and you can see here that the nevi have uh, I'm sorry the nevomelanocytes have completely left the dermal-epidermal junction, there's actually an expanded space here where then they aggregate in large number in the deeper aspect of the dermis. And one might say, well then how does it stick out so much? And if you think about a pressure phenomenon, if you have a space-occupying lesion, essentially this rather expansive aggregate of even benign melanocytes, they take up space, and by virtue of that space expansion, they literally push up on the surface of the skin. It's the path of least resistance, and you get this domed or very polypoid exophytic growth. So those are the three basic types of acquired nevi. We then have congenital nevi, which are most oftentimes also benign. They present within the first 12 months of life and affect just under 6% of the population. They're classified by size. So we have small, medium, and giant. Small being less than 1.5 centimeters at the time of onset. Medium anywhere from 1.5 to 20 centimeters. And again, you're talking about someone who's within their first year of life, so not a very large person. Uh, 20 centimeters would look astronomically large in a small person, but yet it's still classified as a medium-sized congenital nevus. And there is a bit of uh, there's a bit of dialogue as to whether or not um, essentially you could get several experts in a room and and discuss whether or not there's truly an increased risk of melanoma in these medium-sized congenital nevi. I'm not going into that in this particular talk, um, but there's a lot of variation in opinion and it likely has to do with the volume of melanocytes in the larger range of that medium-sized lesion. And then of course giant congenital melanocytic nevi are those that measure greater than 20 centimeters. And they have a different um, prognostication both as it relates My pointer isn't forwarding, sorry. Um. Thank you. As it relates to their inherent risk of the development of melanoma, and as well a complication called neurocutaneous melanosis. I'm still not able to advance. Um. Thank you. And maybe someone, I don't know if it's a battery, could. These are probably 150 slides, and I don't think anyone wants to hear me say next 150 times. Um, But this is a bathing trunk nevus, so this would qualify, of course, as a giant melanocytic congenital nevus. And neurocutaneous melanosis, otherwise known as leptomeningeal melanocytosis, is of significant consequence. Uh, This carries an over 30% mortality rate, and the five-year risk of developing it in anyone with a bathing trunk nevus is just over 2%, about 2.5%. Next slide, please. Thank you. So now we're going to go ahead and hit again, please. The atypical melanocytic tumors or dysplastic nevi. Next, please. Mm -hmm. And again, thank you. And these are the lesions that we qualify as A, B, C, D. Why do we counsel our patients about A, B, C, D? Because there's a high likelihood if a lesion has an A, B, C, or D quality, and it is deriving itself from a melanocyte, and I put that, that in a qualifier, there's a high likelihood that this would actually be microscopically confirmed as a form of a dysplastic or atypical nevus. Next, please. Of course, also, there's evolution. Evolution portends a more poor prognosis, an actively evolving lesion, and 50% of melanomas are derived from dysplastic nevi. And so when you think about how much surface area of your body is actually covered in a nevus, be that dysplastic or otherwise, or how much of your body is not covered with a nevus, you can imagine that the likelihood of melanoma developing is far greater per unit surface area in a pre-existing dysplastic nevus than de novo. But 50% of melanomas arise de novo and 50% out of dysplastic nevi. Next slide, please. You can see here that a dysplastic nevus histopathologically demonstrates this bridging of the reedy ridges here, these melanocytes are A, atypical, and B, architecturally abnormal, in the sense that they're setting up shop, sort of creating bridges. You'll also see that the expansion of the tip of the, uh, the remaining portion, the dermal melanocytes, actually goes to lateral edges that exceed the lateral edges of the bridging. And you also can see lamellar fibroplasia, which is a hyalinization of the collagen at the base of the DE junction. Those are three key features, microscopically, of dysplastic nevi. Next slide, please. So dysplastic nevi can exist in isolation or as a phenotype called dysplastic nevus syndrome, which happens to be defined by patients having greater than 50 nevi with or without atypia, the majority of which happen to be then histologically atypical, and often they have melanoma in either one or more than one first or second degree relative. Next slide, please. So what is the melanoma risk in these patients that present looking like that former image? Several nevi, many of which would be histologically atypical. So if you have dysplastic nevus syndrome, you look like that guy, and you have no relatives with melanoma, your overall risk of developing a melanoma is 6%, which is about threefold the risk of the general population. Dysplastic nevus syndrome and a personal history of already having had a melanoma, that risk increases to 10% that you will get a second melanoma. But if you have dysplastic nevus syndrome and a family history of melanoma, you've not yet had your first melanoma, your risk is 15% that you will develop a melanoma in your lifetime. And if you happen to have, this is pretty striking, and this is important for us when we're taking our histories and understanding what someone's family history is. If you have dysplastic nevus syndrome and two or greater first degree relatives with melanoma, your risk approximates 100% in your lifetime. But the biggest portion of that risk actually arises in your early life. So 85% chance of getting a melanoma under the age of 50. Next slide, please. Speaking of melanoma, we'll move on to melanoma next. Next slide, please. One more time. Oh, so now I'm on again? Aha, thanks. recharged it from afar, this is kind of spooky. All right, so, um, of course, melanoma, by definition is a malignant tumor of melanocytes. Where do melanocytes exist? The majority of melanocytes in the human body are in the skin. Eyes, ears, GI tract, the leptomeninges, as well as the oral and genital mucosa make up the rest. Melanoma has an aggressive behavior. So while it only represents approximately 4% of all of our cutaneous malignancies, it represents nearly 80% of all of our cancer deaths from skin cancer. And it is one of the most common cancers in young adults. This is not just important for when we think about our individual patients, but moreover, the public health concern that arises from particular behaviors that put young people at risk because we have the greatest number of years lost from early deaths related to melanoma at early ages. And the incidence, unfortunately, among Caucasians continues to increase. There's approximately a three to five-fold increased risk worldwide since 1973, but in the United States, that risk has increased more precipitously. So we saw a four-fold increase in the U.S. in the past 40 years, but a 12-fold increase in the United States over the past six decades. And while it's reassuring that mortality stabilized in the early 1990s, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Early detection, of course, is key. Uh, The prognostication of melanoma has direct correlation to the vertical invasion, which we'll get into later. So currently, approximately one in 50, or 2%, of Americans will develop a melanoma in their lifetime. When I was in college, actually, one of my uh, I did a few years of research in the Pigmented Lesion Group Clinic and the Dermatology Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania. And my project was on the molecular epidemiology of melanoma. And at that time, my senior thesis, um, we had, a, we had a, a, an incidence rate of 1 in 75 Americans. And I'm not going to date myself, because um, maybe I was in college quite a while ago. Um, but when you think of the overall course of our incidence rates and being able to say 1 in 75 Americans, and I'll just say the year was... Um, 2003, actually, was when I gave that thesis. One in 75 Americans were going to get melanoma, and we're already at one in 50. It's a pretty decent increase. Again, this is a disease, a diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis that arises at a young age. So the median age diagnosis is anywhere from 45 to 55, which really does not sound that old anymore. Uh, And 25% of cases are diagnosed before the age of 40. Very, very important. We have no CMS guidelines for the screening of cutaneous malignancies, right? We do for breast, for colon, for prostate, for many other things. But likely because of the variations in risk with regard to where you live, what your occupational or recreational activities are, your skin tone, your inherent phenotype, we have such a great variation in risk, yet we can't ignore that these numbers are incredibly meaningful. And so when someone comes in and says, you know, my spouse has never been examined and I'm just curious. You know, should they get a full body exam when they're 35 years of age? One in four melanomas is diagnosed before the age of 40. It's a big deal. It represents the fifth most common cancer in men and the sixth most common cancer in women and it happens to be the most common cancer in young women. So between the ages of 25 and 29, melanoma is the most common malignancy and it's the leading cause of cancer death in women between the ages of 25 and 30. Race uh, matters, so Caucasian Americans are 20 times more likely than African Americans to develop melanoma, and I I yet want not to discourage you from screening your more deeply pigmented Fitzpatrick skin types. There was a very nice lead article in JAD, I think in 2006 or so, 2007, that uh, was regarding the dramatic increase. Rel- the dramatic increased rate of diagnosis of melanoma in skin of color, and we can't ignore that population. You know, I practice in Phoenix, Arizona, that's a qualifier, but I have several patients that have deeply pigmented skin types from four to six that we have diagnosed with melanoma. Don't forget about that population. So what are the melanoma risk factors? Certainly family history plays a role with or without identifiable genes, but most certainly if there are genetic profiles that portend a risk, take that seriously. CDK2NA, high risk, BRCA2, lesser risk but still relevant. Of course the phenotype, lightly pigmented skin with red hair and a tendency to sunburn. Dysplastic nevis syndrome as we have articulated in the xeroderma pigmentosum DNA repair defect. All increased genetic risks. And then there are environmental risks. Of course, intense intermittent sun exposure, those people that live at high latitudes, areas where they don't get a tremendous amount of sun, and then they vacation in Florida for spring break and, you know, for July 4th weekend and spend a week, you know, twice a year getting intense sunburns. High risk. Chronic sun exposure, your roofers, your lifeguards, your, you know, persons that love to jog or to play golf. Equatorial latitudes closer to the equator, higher incidence of melanoma. Puva and tanning beds, and of course, underlying immunosuppression. Usually, most oftentimes that's iatrogenic immunosuppression, which increases the risk for melanoma. And this is a graph actually taken out of the Bologna text. I, I, wouldn't find it difficult to believe that almost nobody can read that and I'm, I'm sorry, but really what it was just to kind of show you is that there are categories of greatly increased risk, which I can just tell you up in here, say personal history of atypical moles or family history of melanoma and greater than you know, 50 moles, uh, previous non-melanoma skin cancer, congenital nevus, that's a giant sized nevus, a history of melanoma, family history of melanoma or immunosuppression. Uh, then there's moderately increased risk which are a large number of nevi or upwards of 10 clinically atypical nevi, chronic um, tanning, and then modestly increased risk, not moderately, but modestly. Uh, repeated blistering sunburns, you know, even just three blistering sunburns increases your relative risk by almost four. Strickling, fair skin, red hair, and clinically atypical nevi. But really what we can break this down is, into are the, what I call, non-modifiable risks and modifiable risks. You can't change your parents, you can't change you know, what race you were born into, you can't change if anybody in your family did have melanoma. Your modifiable risks are really all up to you, or you and your provider to minimize. So ultraviolet radiation, of course, numbers one, two, and three, and then unfortunately circumstance can play a role. But immunosuppression, if you are dealing with somebody that is at higher risk, is something that you should be considering as another additive factor in their risk and how you might be able to help modify that with um, another provider. I'm talking about your transplant population, of course, and uh, patients otherwise on immunosuppressant medications. So melanoma risk factors. Again, personal history of melanoma in the absence of having atypical nevi, your risk of developing another melanoma is about 5%. Uh, this is why we continue to screen our melanoma patients more frequently than the general population. And if you have no personal history of melanoma, but again, several dysplastic nevi and a first degree relative with melanoma. So you're talking about dysplastic nevis syndrome and a first degree relative with melanoma. You have, I'm sorry, t- two first degree relatives with melanoma. You have an 85% chance you will develop melanoma by the age of 48. And so I bring this up because I think it's important that we really understand the mechanism of insult uh, environmentally of UV radiation. So I've, I've put on here the electromagnetic spectrum, not to take you all back to basic physics, but to show you at very rapid wavelength, very, I'm sorry, short wavelength, rapid undulation, you have very, very intense energy. So, example, here on the far left side, well, this this is our UV spectrum, so a little bit longer wavelength here within the electromagnetic spectrum, 280 to 400. But along the far left side of that, let me go back again and just point here. So I'm gonna start here on X-ray, and then I'm gonna take you into UV, and then we're gonna go all the way out here to radio waves so you can understand how these wavelengths matter differently. So at X-ray, we have a very, very, very short wavelength, very high intensity energy. And so with the higher intensity, shorter wavelength, the undulation being shorter, again, a wavelength is from tip to tip, the length from tip to tip, from tip to tip, or from bottom to bottom. That wavelength is short if it's a short distance. It means a high intensity energy. That's how you get reflection off of a surface and you can get the image of a bone on an x-ray. Very, very high intensity energy reflecting back onto a surface and giving you an image of what was seen. As you move further to the right and you have longer wavelengths, you know the space between here and here is longer, again getting longer, again getting longer. You're in the ultraviolet spectrum and as the Wavelengths get longer, so, so we'll start on the shorter. Let's just pretend you're behind window glass. You're in your car, you're behind window glass. Do we often get a sunburn when we're behind the window glass? Not oftentimes. Gotta kind of roll down your window and put your arm out to get a sunburn. And the reason is, is because UVB radiation, which is a short wavelength of light, very high intensity of light, which is why it causes a burn. It causes keratinocytes to undergo necrosis. That's the definition of a sunburn. UVB light cannot penetrate window glass very effectively because it's such a high energy, it hits a surface and it immediately reflects back off the surface. It's hitting that surface at such an acute angle that it's reflecting back, which is what I'm trying to illustrate here with my arrows. So you're on this side of the window, the sun's coming in from the outside and the majority of the arrows pointing back, just a little bit's coming through. Which is why, again, we don't get sunburned behind a window glass. Moving further into longer wavelengths, you're, getting, you're still in UVB. Uh, Sorry, now you're close to UVA here. You're in UVA with my image. So you're sitting on the inside of the glass, and the majority of light now on a longer wavelength is hitting at a more obtuse angle. is coming right through the window glass. And so you're sitting inside your car, and you're getting a lot of UVA hit. You're not getting UVB. You might think you're not getting much sun because you're not getting a sunburn. But indeed, you are getting a lot of UV radiation. And as you move further along here, of course now, Purely UVA spectrum would get all, all the way through your window glass. And we've all been behind a window and listened to somebody pull up next to us with a radio that's too loud and we absolutely know radio waves go right through the window glass we can hear what they're playing. So just to give you that spectrum of what's coming through, it's really important when you live in a sunny environment and people are commuting. I mean, think about driving back and forth, salespeople, your drug reps, going in and out of their car all day long. They're getting a lot of UVA radiation. In fact, Because of the long wavelength and its ability to penetrate directly down from the sun, 90% of what hits the Earth's surface is actually UVA. You may wonder why I'm spending so much time on electromagnetic radiation and you'll learn from here that UVA is the strongest wavelength for the potentiation of melanoma progression. So again, sunburns come from UVB, they have two to three fold uh, melanoma risk increases with by two to three fold with a history of multiple sunburns, likely because if 10% of the UV radiation hitting the earth at any given time was sufficient to give you a sunburn, you were also getting a lot of UVA radiation at that time. Tanning bed use, that is UVA radiation. That is why we are so worried about tanning beds and melanoma risk. And then of course, PUVA therapy, something that we administer to patients, may indeed increase their risk of melanoma. And as I alluded to, data suggests that melanoma is truly promoted by UVA light, and we get increasing amounts of UVA light at higher elevations and lower latitudes. Um, And and sorry, just to go back again on why only 10% of UV uh, that hits the Earth's surface is UVB and 90% is UVA, again, with that very short energy, anything that that wavelength bounces, hits, it's gonna bounce off and reflect back into the atmosphere. So clouds, smog, particulate matter, pollens, all of those things actually reflect UVB back into the atmosphere, whereas UVA penetrates right through it. So on a cloudy day, you get a lot of UVA radiation. And uh, that last comment of increasing exposures at higher elevations and lower latitudes, uh, just a quick factoid, for every 1,000 feet of elevation, you get 8% more UV light. So for any of you that are practicing in Colorado in the mountains at 5,000, 6,000 feet, you're about 50% more UV light. Chemical sunscreens are clearly uh, very, very effective at protecting against UVB sunburn. Um, In fact, your SPF factor on a sunscreen is purely a UVB protection factor, has zero connotation as to what its UVA protection is. Um, And it may give you a false sense to go out and lay out in the sun. Certainly, many, many chemical sunscreens nowadays do block fairly sufficiently into the UVA spectrum, and it is because those chemical sunscreens, in large part, have either included Mexoral or a physical block in the chemical block. Otherwise, purely physical blocks are, frankly, fairly good at protecting against broad spectrum UVA and UVB, uh, but they act as reflectants, and they are probably less stable in water. Um, So, for your patients that are going to the beach, you know, they're going to have to weigh the reapplication with. Um, the the preference over chemical sunscreen, pure chemical versus physical. And then one of my newest and latest and greatest favorite things is simply just to recommend sun protective clothing because they've actually gotten kind of cute. So they're more appealing to people of late. Many different companies are offering um, UPF wear, uh, which is the equivalent of an SPF but includes the UVA spectrum as well. Oops, sorry. So the molecular pathogenesis of melanoma arises from several different features that can go awry at any given time, namely the self-sufficient growth signals that melanocytes can develop, their insensitivity to anti-growth signals, the ability to evade scheduled cell death or apoptosis, Ultimately, they develop a limitless replicative potential, sustained angiogenesis, so they grow their own blood vessels in the vicinity of where they are, which then, of course, helps to facilitate further tissue invasion and distant metastasis. And it is the activation of oncogenes, the inactivation of tumor suppressor genes, and or the altering of signaling molecules, which act all in sequence to allow melanoma to progress. And I liked this cartoon of the melanoma progression, again, starting with what looks like a benign nevus, If you're unlucky enough to then have that benign nevus turn into a dysplastic nevus, remember that 50% of melanomas derive themselves from dysplastic nevi. So this dysplastic nevus here, again, starting to show features that are atypical progression with some bridging here, now breaking off separately into a radial growth phase where primarily we're still going laterally, but in separate dysplastic architectural array, and then the vertical growth phase, which is really when the prognosis changes and ultimately invasion into the blood supply in the dermis and allowance for distant metastasis. And this could be a blood vessel or a lymphatic channel. We do recognize that melanoma spreads with two modalities. So of course, early detection is key to increasing our melanoma survival rates. And this can be done several different ways, most definitely with the help of you all in your clinical examinations. Attention to ABCDE criteria, and very especially in your adult population that should no longer be acquiring new nevi. We said the majority should happen through the fourth decade. Um, The ugly duckling sign. Which of these looks like it just doesn't belong? Which could be a de novo melanoma or could be the evolution of an existing mole into something that's dysplastic or even worse, melanoma. Of course, dermatoscopy can be incredibly helpful in our distinction between what might not even be a melanocytic lesion or a melanocytic lesion with atypia. Um, Clinical photography and serial photography can either be done by many of you in the office settings. And I would encourage you to have your patients that are at higher risk also doing clinical photography at home. And if you do an exam on a given day and you say, listen, If you take your pictures when you get home, or you let me, sorry, let me take your pictures today, at least we have a clean baseline. I don't need you taking pictures ever again. I need you using these pictures and comparing to these images moving forward. And then of course our gold standard, histology. You biopsy something if you don't think it's quite right. Uh, And this could be done with or without the pigment deletion assay. As many of you know, I spoke to that in the uh, scientific advisory committee talk earlier this week. So there's clearly an ugly duckling on this particular patient. And when you talk to patients about evolution, don't forget about the symptoms, not just the appearance. So a pre-existing mole, which all of a sudden itches or bleeds, that also should suggest uh, concern. Of course, dermatoscopy, serial photography, and then I just want to point out that those A, B, C, D, E criterium, of course, don't necessarily mean that everything that meets those criteria is a concern. By definition, it has to be a melanocytic lesion. So not every lesion that meets those criteria of being asymmetric and having border irregularity and color variability is melanocytic in origin. Here's a separate keratosis, of course, derived from keratinocytes. This would be a dermatofibroma derived from collagen and a lesion that's a hemangioma derived from a blood vessel, of course. So let's go through these melanoma variants. Four major types of melanoma, from the most common to the least common, we have superficial spreading melanoma, nodular melanoma, lentigo maligna, and acro lentiginous. So superficial spreading melanoma represents between two-thirds and three-quarters of all melanoma. Most common, you'll find these melanoma on the trunk or legs, the trunk in men, excuse me, and the legs in women. It will begin as a brown lesion, often with just a variegate or irregular surfaced um, border. The diameter does tend to be just slightly larger than a normal nevus, so just upwards of about six millimeters. And they develop variable pigment over time. So this is the lesion that someone may say to you, you know, it used to just be kind of this medium brown, and the side of it is looking darker to me. Perfect. Believe your patience. Nodular melanoma, 15 to 20% of all melanomas, again, most common on the trunk and extremities, tends to actually begin as a brown or black papule or nodule, grows rapidly and not infrequently will these subtypes ulcerate. And as we talk about the prognostication of melanoma from a microscopic perspective, um, ulceration is an important factor. Lentigo maligna melanoma, representing fewer melanomas. Really, these are melanomas that exist in chronically sun-damaged skin. So they're very common on the extensor forearms, hands, and face, and neck. This tends to be a diagnosis of older individuals versus the majority of melanomas we talked about happen really in middle age. This is a diagnosis of the elderly. A large brown or black patch, oftentimes very large. So you think about clearing something like this on someone's face. No small task, up to six centimeters in diameter. Um, is not even that unusual. And very slow growth over years, often arising out of what clinically otherwise had just looked like it was a lentigo amongst many other lentigenes. And lastly, acrolentigenous melanoma. Very rare melanoma in Caucasians, but actually not an infrequent type of melanoma in our more pigmented, uh, heavily pigmented skin types. Has a predilection for the palm soles and mucous membranes and this is a very aggressive form of melanoma, metastasizing early. In fact, when I counsel my patients and I do my full body exams and say, you know, and just when you take your nail polish off, always be sure to take a look, even if you're not the one taking the nail polish off. You never want to have a vertical line going from the cuticle to the tip of the fingernail or toenail. And then they're like, huh, and I say, that's how Bob Marley dies. And they all go, oh, really? That's how Bob Marley died, and it kind of sticks. So you, know, you can share that factoid with your patients and they'll never forget. So of course, the key to a melanoma diagnosis is the biopsy. You've gotta get adequate depth, and whether you do that by an excisional biopsy, a very deep shave, or a punch, um, you've gotta get a representative portion of the lesion if you are only taking a sample of a, existing, uh, of a larger lesion, and you've gotta to get to adequate depth because that's gonna be your biggest prognostic indicator histologically. So this would be an early melanoma, melanoma in situ, where the atypical melanocytes are expanding along throughout the epidermis. This is beginning to have what are called pagetoid spread. All of these cells with the white halo are melanocytes, but not yet invading into the dermis. This, of course, is by distinction very different. So these melanocytes are now encompassing a large portion of the dermis, an invasive melanoma. So as I just alluded to, melanoma prognostication takes into account several different factors, but when it comes down to it, as far as AJCC guidelines and NCCN guidelines are concerned, the way you are going to manage your patient in your practice, while they're going to, your dermatopathologist will give you all of these measured, ah, sorry, uh, measured pieces as a descriptive of your melanoma, there are only two factors here now as of 2019 with the updated AJCC that actually are considered prognostic as far as uh, lymph node involvement. So, this is just an example of a scalp biopsy from a gentleman who had a 1.02 millimeter uh, thick melanoma on the scalp. Again, he was bald and it was lenticomalignotype, so arising in a setting of several antigenes. Um, he happened to have no ulceration. I'm losing my mouse again. Um, at the time, we used to take into account mitoses, and he did have one mitosis per high power field. This is a cartoon diagrammatic of the Breslow depth showing, shown by the arrow here. So taken from the very top of the epidermis, the granular layer, all the way down to the depth of invasion of the last melanocyte measured in millimeters. That is the Breslow depth. And that is the the most important prognostic indicator when it comes to microstaging for melanoma. So I don't like that they put a bump here, but you should see the epidermis above the bump. Uh, Anyhow, and then you would measure from the granular layer of that epidermis to the lowest portion of the invasion of melanoma, and this would give you a depth of 3.3 millimeters. Well, why does that help us? Because we've gotta know what to do, not just Well, you have melanoma. Well, how are you going to manage the melanoma? Are you going to excise it right off the bat? And if so, what kind of margin do you need? Does the patient need a sentinel lymph node biopsy before they're ready for their excision? So all of this is is very important on the primary T-staging. So the excision with appropriate margins, whether or not they need a sentinel lymph node biopsy, again, predicted by the Breslow depth and the presence or absence of ulceration. And then the idea of a, an elective lymph node dissection would come into play in somebody who may have a very deep Breslow depth or clinically palpable lymphadenopathy. So if you have a lesion you're biopsing at the time of the evaluation, and you have a high likelihood of suspicion that it may be a melanoma it is wise, in fact it's appropriate and recommended that you do a lymph node exam in the draining basin from that site in which you did the biopsy. Because the patient's of course going to go home and you're gonna get a result three days later, pick up the phone and call them to go over the results and what needs to happen. And if you don't know if they had detectable lymphadenopathy, How do you counsel them accordingly without having to then bring them back into your office? Which you may want to do if you have a melanoma diagnosis anyhow. Um, But it's a good practice to be in so you know what you're talking about when you're talking to the patient about what will likely be the next step. So taking those two factors into the melanoma T-staging, of course melanoma is staged with the TNM staging modality that most tumors utilize. Uh, These are kind of the breakdowns of what the T-staging means. So I put the line here because basically uh, anything below the line would be eligible for a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Anything above the line really should not be considered for a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So your cutoff right here is a melanoma that would be less than or equal to 0.8 millimeters. Again, this is updated 2019 data from AJCC. less than or equal to 0.8 millimeter thickness with ulceration, so it could be a 0.6 millimeter depth with ulceration, or anything that would be considered minimally invasive, 0.8 to 1, with or without ulceration. You get deeper than that, one to two millimeters without ulceration. All of this is considered intermediate depth from one to four millimeters. So all of those with one to four millimeter depth, regardless of ulceration, are recommended to to have a discussion about sentinel lymph node. And then beyond that, we'll discuss, and I have more, another slide on this. So we'll go through it when to do or not to do. Sentinel lymph node, again, is not recommended for patients with thin melanomas, you know, defined by a depth of less than 0.8, without ulceration. It may be considered for those that are superficially invasive, 0.8 to 1 millimeter, uh, or 0.8. Thickness with an ulceration. A sentinel node is recommended for those with intermediate depth melanomas, one to two milli- I'm sorry, one to four millimeters with or without ulceration. And it may be recommended for patients with deeper melanomas greater than four millimeters, but at that point you might better be set doing an elective lymph node dissection than just doing a sentinel node. And of course I have the asterisk there that this is after a thorough discussion considering the potential risks and benefits, and that is to say that the reason to do a sentinel lymph node is really for prognostication. Unfortunately, we don't have an overall survival that is of anything we can benefit with currently available treatment modalities. I'm gonna say that one more time. The reason to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy is because somebody wants to know the information, they would rather know than not know, and they're willing to undergo the procedure with the associated risks of the surgical procedure. That could mean that you have a post-operative infection. That might mean that you have lymphedema, um, or it could be that you have no complications, of course. But the reason to do it is to prognosticate their likelihood of ultimately having metastasis down the road, a stage three diagnosis. Um, Currently available treatments have not yet proven, and I will say that with a qualifier because I think it's just time until we aggregate enough data with the newest modalities of care, but we currently don't have available treatments that we have identified that can extend the life of someone, melanoma-free survival, um, just based on sentinel lymph node statistical involvement or lack of involvement. And I hope that all made sense. So your metastasis staging, of course, your review of systems, Shortness of breath, cough, vision changes, headaches, common organ systems where melanoma likes to go, a good physical examination, in advanced stages of melanoma, don't hesitate from getting an LDH, a chest X-ray, maybe even PET-CT, and basic blood counts and chemistry panels. And why is it all important? Because ultimately, our goal is to translate anything that we identify into meaning for a patient. So we take this to the TNM and I'll do a small exercise with you on TNM staging. You have a primary Breslow depth of 1.4 millimeters that lacks ulceration and mitoses. Does this qualify for someone for whom you would recommend a sentinel lymph node biopsy? They're willing to undergo the procedure and would like to know their prognostication. Yes, so they ended, They have a T stage of a T2A, again, a, an uh, a minimally invasive, 1 to 2, without ulceration. So we're gonna put them into the table here. T2a, we did our sentinel node after a thorough discussion, and they had their sentinel node positive with N1a disease, clinically occult microscopic metastasis. Imaging was negative, and they did a, after you do a sentinel node, if it's positive, they take out the rest of the node, so there was nothing else there by virtue of the N1a. And the PET-CT was negative, M0, So this patient was a T2A, N1A, M0 stage. Again, T2A, N1A. So they ended up as a clinical stage three melanoma patient. So again, translating all of these alphabet soups into something that's meaningful, we're talking about melanoma survival, we're talking about prognostication. This patient wants to know, what's my likelihood of living? And at what point in time do I need to feel as though my survival's at risk? And so these are comparison curves. You can see the great drop off between a stage one and a stage two and stage three, and of course, stage four with a a very dramatic drop in survival early after the diagnosis. And I'm just gonna circle here the stage three. So stage three patients, again, and this is subdivided into three A, B, and C, which is beyond the scope of this talk, have a survival rate, of anywhere from 26 to 69 percent, so on average, somewhere around 50 percent. And for those of you that were in my talk earlier, when we were talking about the um, uh, a prognostication with melanoma using the castle biosciences test many of you remember that I said stage 3 melanoma patients 50% will have occult metastasis and so in the stage 1 and 2 if we could do that tape stripping analysis or I'm sorry the, the microscopic analysis on their actual tumor to look at the gene profile the gene expression profile maybe we could understand which percentage of patients in early stage disease would even have a higher risk of metastasis if we could find that small percentage of patients because 50% of stage 3 patients we know will eventuate into having distant metastasis. And that's shown here with a survival between 26 and 70%. 50% finding itself right in the middle of our stage three population. (laughs) Melanoma follow-up. Obviously, updates to medical history. Are they now seeing a neurologist for chronic headaches? Review of systems. Full body skin examination. Always, always, always palpate your melanoma scars because the first place that a melanoma will recur will be local. So you palpate the scar, you palpate the region around them. I picked up subcutaneous metastasis just from palpation alone, not from any visible idea that anything was going on. Palpate the lymph node basins. Melanoma is one of those evil malignancies that even if you did a sentinel lymph node biopsy, what happens if it was in transit? What happens if it was in transit and you missed it on sentinel lymph node and your patient's immune system in their young, healthy person, the people that are most commonly afflicted by this, by this malignant diagnosis, is containing that melanoma somehow in their lymphatic transition or their hematogenous spread, and eventually, years later, the melanoma pops up. How many of you have had a patient who had a melanoma for which it was appropriate to do a sentinel node, the sentinel node comes back negative, and seven years later, your patient has enlarged lymphadenopathy and ultimately the identification of metastasis? Again, it's that portion of patients that if we had another clinical test that was better than anything we currently had. Again, the gene expression profile I'm throwing out there because that's currently postulated as potentially being helpful in that scenario. We may be able to pick up those patients that really are at higher risk. And ultimately, if we can do the right studies, we can figure out, well then, what interval do we screen them on? How do we screen them to pick them up earlier? But don't think that because it's five years out, you're out of the woods, not with this diagnosis. So palpate your lymph node basins, palpate your scar and that region every time. Counsel your patients to do the same at home because eventually they'll be on a screening profile, of, you know, after 5 years of every 6 months likely. Well, they can do some things at home to help you out, help them out. Again, laboratory or radiology evaluation depending on the original stage and then just to remind them of course to do their home exams and to always continue to photoprotect. So, in summary, nevi and melanoma exist along a, a biologic spectrum. Key features on physical examination can be very helpful in distinguishing between benign and malignant tumors. UVB and UVA irradiation from the sun and other sources are known carcinogens. The incidence of melanoma is rising. Melanoma is an aggressive malignancy with an overrepresentation in younger white populations. And early detection is key, as the majority of tumors will eventuate into growing vertically, and depth is the most important prognostic factor in determining one's survival. And that's all we've got. Thank you very much. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Okay, so the first question. uh, How do you treat recurrent dysplastic nevi? Excision, with a small margin, uh, depends upon what the initial histologic interpretation was of the dysplasia, but even in mildly atypical nevi with any pigment recurrence, my personal practice is to re-excise. This is totally not scientific, um, but a single story of the first month when I was faculty at Tulane after having graduated from my residency. I had a woman who came in with a lesion on her abdomen, Caucasian female, probably in her mid-40s, who had had a mildly dysplastic nevus by biopsy. She actually had her report with her. It was from five years previously. She was establishing care in New Orleans. She had never, she had not formerly lived there. And she said, and I was told, with my mildly dysplastic nevi, it says margins are free, that if pigment ever recurred to come back and have it Reevaluated, so she presents with her pathology report: mildly dysplastic nevus, margins free from five years prior, and a little dot of pigment on the margin of her biopsy site. Small biopsy site; it was about five millimeters in width. I mean, it was a very scant, hypopigmented scar with a dot. And I rebiopsied it, and it was melanoma in situ. So while there is a uh, again a, a large variation in opinion of what to do with mildly dysplastic nevi, because in the overwhelming majority. Uh, none of them, you know, the overwhelming majority, you will not see progression to melanoma. But, you know, when you're young and new and that happens to you, you start to think twice about every mildly dysplastic nevus you remove that says margins appear clear and, you know, what do you do if pigment comes back or what if it extends into the margins? So I'll just tell you, if it extends to margins and it's mildly atypical ah, sorry. And it extends, uh, t- t- if it extends to margins and it's mildly atypical, I bring them back and I just do a shave removal. Two reasons really. Sampling bias. What if I actually didn't sample the worst part of the mole? Um, and also then of course if it does not extend to margins and it looks clinically clear, I counsel patients to return if any pigment recurs. And in that scenario, then I would do an excision. Assuming it's a while later and I would rather be deeper. Molina um, melanoma, any tips for evaluating pigmented lesions within tattoos? Ugh. I, I literally, uh, you know, often will comment to my patients who have had a history of melanoma that have a lot of tattoos um, that, you know, they're making my job very, very difficult. And I literally scour them, I take my dermatoscope and I, I change the settings so I actually hold it away from the skin as an amplified light source directly over the tattoo, and then if anything seems, of course, egregious, I'm using my dermatoscope, but it is very difficult. Several years ago, this guy moved away, but I had a melanoma uh, tattoo, I'm sorry, a tattoo artist who had three melanomas, and I literally used to get like a belly upset every time I would see him on the schedule, just wondering, oh my God, am I gonna miss something? But he had had three melanomas, and he was covered, I mean covered in tattoos. Do I refer all of my melanoma patients to oncology? No. Early stage superficial melanomas, I follow myself. Anyone with advanced stage, you know, advanced tumor stage, we do send off to medical oncology to manage with us. Do you screen melanoma patients, especially with those with two or more for pancreatic cancer? Ordering ultrasound? wow. no, I don't. But I do use the color uh, test, and that's—I'm not again. I have no vested interest in this, but it's a very simple test. If you ever go to color.com, color.com offers a test. It's now two hundred and I think fifty-nine dollars for patients to do at home. I've done it myself, actually. Um, In the privacy of their own home, they spit into a test tube. I mean, there are some rules like don't chew gum and eat anything for 30 minutes before spitting into the test tube. But you send it off and you get a result uh, within three weeks. It's done perfectly in the privacy of your own home, so none of your physicians actually have to have the record. You know, as far as pre-existing conditions are concerned and where our laws will sit on that, uh, that might be relevant, but um, you have to know that if you are pursuing genetic testing in anyone, Two things. Uh, Number one, they're running a slew of genes that may not be anything you're looking for. So you must counsel patients accordingly. It's not fair to have them spit into a test tube and you're looking for melanoma risk and all of a sudden they get back that they've got uterine cancer, colon cancer, and some other cancer risk that has nothing to do with melanoma. They need to know that it's looking at 39 genes and the risk of everything. And number two is life insurance companies can find that you did this and I don't know how they can but they, they will know that you've done it and so it's appropriate also if you have maybe younger people that haven't yet secured life insurance, that if that's like on their to-do list in the next short while, or they're looking to start a family and they're gonna want life insurance, that maybe they get it a year or two earlier uh, to just get it secured, because ultimately they can discriminate. They cannot after the fact, but they can. um, Life insurance underwriters can discriminate if you have uh, a gene defect. But I do not do pancreatic cancer screening in someone with family history and personal history unless they carry the gene, the CDK2NA gene mutation. Um, do you recommend UV filters for cars? Um, I do. I, I, I don't have a brand, um, but you can go to um, you know, your car uh, dealerships and so forth, and they usually work with a person that can do extra tinting. And for people that are at higher risk or that have had several uh, skin cancers, transplant populations, we'll write a letter of medical necessity that allows them to get that um, done at a grade higher than what others, otherwise is considered standard. Um, Do you send patients for genetic testing with a history of melanoma? If so, when and are you worried about future life? Huh, that's great. So thanks for asking. The um, genetic testing happens not just if they have a single melanoma, but a single melanoma and one first degree relative, I talk to them about it, and that first degree relative having had a history of melanoma being it. So if that first degree relative had a history of melanoma and either that relative or anyone in the same... Uh, lineage so let's say it was a patient who has melanoma their mother also had melanoma I'll discuss it if their mother had melanoma the patient has melanoma their mother has melanoma and the mother's father either had melanoma or there's anything in that lineage with uh, pancreatic cancer colon cancer or breast cancer then we recommend it not just discuss it but recommend it sure a single person with a single melanoma and no significant family history, I don't make the recommendation for genetic testing. The patient with melanoma with one first degree relative with melanoma, I do have a discussion, and, and meaning that that's the only family history is they have a first degree relative with melanoma. If they have either two first degree relatives with melanoma, so the patient has melanoma, and they have two first degree relatives with melanoma, or one first degree melanoma, first degree relative with melanoma, and anyone else in that lineage, so if it was the mom with melanoma, the maternal lineage, her siblings, her parents, that have either melanoma, or meaning a second degree relative of the patient, or breast or colon or pancreatic cancer, then we recommend it. So on that last scenario, again, patient had melanoma, they have a first degree relative with melanoma, and that first degree relative with melanoma in that person's lineage has either breast, pancreas, or colon. Then we recommend it. Do you excise positive margins, revives your watch for moderate? I excise for moderate atypia. Again, if it's positive margins on a moderate atypia, you should be at least reasonably concerned there could be sampling bias. If you've not cleared the entire thing, at the margin you may have something that's more than moderate. So you want complete sampling by the dermatopathologist, not because you think you missed melanoma, it'd be rare to have moderate in one stage of a lesion and melanoma, but severe, you'd certainly want to clear severely atypical nevi. Again, 50% of melanomas arise from atypical nevi. Uh, Nevi, since 50% of melanomas develop Uh, from dysplastic nevi, do you recommend biopsying all atypical appearing nevi, or are you okay monitoring and when do you fully excise mildly atypical nevi? So, okay, let's answer the first question. Um, I do not recommend biopsying all atypical appearing nevi. I do, if it's the ugly duckling factors in a given individual. If they have dysplastic nevis syndrome, I tell them they sit one or two standard deviations from the mean, and I am not cutting off all their moles, because mildly atypical, maybe even mild to moderate, is their normal. So I'm looking for ugly ducklings in them that would suggest greater than moderate, uh, mild to moderate atypia, so moderate moderate moderate, severe, severely atypical. Um, When do I fully excise mildly atypical? I really don't fully excise mildly atypical. The only way I would know it's mildly atypical is if I did a biopsy, and the only reason I would be taking any more is if it extended to margins, and in that case, I tend to do a broad shave Um, rather than an excision. Um, Melanoma, sunspot versus melanoma. Any pearls to suggest one or the other? By sunspot, I think you may mean like lentigo. Uh, So the variations in pigment and evolution over time. So if a given lesion at any moment in time, that's a lentigo has various different degrees of pigmentation or dermatoscopic appearing features where there's been a dropout of pigmentation or many of the other things that can be seen in an atypical lesion, biopsy it, Um, melanoma, you know, certainly uh, meeting all of the uh, factors of ABCDE, those, those tend to be very, a frank melanoma versus a lentigo tend to clinically look quite different from one another. Longitudinal melanonychia, when do you do a biopsy versus watch? Um, if it does not come from the matrix, do I have to worry? So, longitudinal melanonychia that does not start at the matrix is probably actually not longitudinal melanonychia because the Uh, Melanocytes are in the matrix, so to have even a mole causing longitudinal melanonychia, it would have to start in the matrix. If you have something that skips the cuticle, meaning it's not actually extending proximal enough to the cuticle, it probably is not melanocytic in origin. It's probably hemorrhage. Uh, Screening for, what is your criteria for suggestion skin checks for kids? Oh, yeah, this is a great question. What age? So always around the time of puberty because during certain hormonal influences, you can get influence on actual melanocytic behavior. Again, beyond scope of of this talk, but most especially we've all heard of estrogen and estrogen's impact on melanocyte behavior. uh, basically, how white is the kid, what type of outdoor uh, exposures do they get, and I always say to parents when they ask this question in the absence of their kid being there, hey, so I've got a 14-year-old, and you know, I said when they're done listening to you, and when they're starting to balk doing the things that you want them to do, make them listen to us so that we get them in for good counseling about when they're going rafting down the river not to let themselves get a sunburn. Remember, just three sunburns in your lifetime increases the risk of melanoma four, nearly fourfold. It's 3.8-fold. So if you can prevent under the age of 18 those behaviors that um, may put them at risk later, let us counsel those patients, not to scare them necessarily, but kind of just scare them. Um, MIS, what is the difference between MIS and lentigo maligna melanoma? So lentigo maligna melanoma arises from a lentigo and it expands, so so lentigo maligna is the actual MIS version of lentigo maligna melanoma, so they're not necessarily in, um, dis, uh, totally dis, Where did that go? Distinguishable from one another. Um, MIS simply means that the melanoma of any type is existing only within the epidermis. Lentigo maligna melanoma means an invasive form of melanoma that arose from what otherwise looks like lentiginous melanocytic spread. Now, before it invades, that lentigo that can evolve into melanoma may have a stage called lentigo maligna, where it hasn't broken through the basement membrane. So it's the MIS version of lentigo maligna melanoma. I hope that made sense. Uh, does mitotic rate play a role in your decision to do a lymph node biopsy? Well. AJCC used to agree with me and we could do that last year. Now we are supposed to consider it and weigh it much like we would weigh it as an extra factor like lymphatic invasion, uh, perineural invasion. You know, I I I can tell you I've had very thin melanomas, 0.6 or less that had perineural invasion. No ulceration, no mitosis, but that, what do you do with that? So does it play a role? Yes, and I think that under this type of circumstance, it's our obligation to actually talk to patients and say that, unfortunately, the data doesn't suggest X, Y, or Z, but I'm a little more concerned. So what do you want to do? You know, These are our options, and you, you play it out that way. And sometimes you'll get involved, actually, medical oncology as well in those scenarios that are a little more obscure. Looks like I'm getting kicked off again. Um, I know I'm back up shortly, but thank you so much for your, your presentation. We'll give you a bathroom break and come back in a few. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.